while back, I had a request from one of our faithful church members uh, to preach a sermon series on a specific topic. And I don't always honor those requests because sometimes I think maybe a topic is of great interest to one person, but may not be that relevant to the bulk of the congregation. And that's something I always have to think about when I'm choosing my topics. But this request to preach a sermon series on the subject of grace was one I decided to honor for three reasons. Number one, I believe grace is God's greatest gift to us. Now you might say, oh, no, 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 Jesus is God's greatest gift. But really, the gift of Jesus is the gift of grace. We have grace because Jesus came and lived and died and rose again on the third day. So really, it's all wrapped up together. You really can't separate God's grace from Jesus or Jesus from God's grace. The second reason I decided to honor this request to preach about grace is because there are so many people who need it, but don't have it. And then the third reason I decided to preach this series is because there are so many people who have grace, but don't appreciate it. And those two categories are the ones I'm really concerned about. People who need God's grace but don't have it, and people who have it but don't appreciate it. And I hope you're in neither one of those categories. But I'm afraid there are quite a few people in this room right now who would fit into one of those two categories. And so for the rest of this month, grace will be our topic. And I hope that by the time February ends, you'll understand God's greatest gift to you better than you ever have before. I hope you'll appreciate it more than you ever have before. So, what is God's grace? Well, some people say it's unmerited favor. That's one of the classic definitions. Just two words, unmerited favor. Some people say it's God doing for us what we cannot do for ourselves. Some people turn it into an acrostic and say it's God's riches at Christ's expense. And all of those definitions are fine, they're all true, but they all seem a little lacking to me. I'm not sure you can capture the wonder and the magnificence of God's grace in ten words or less. It's kind of like a rainbow. I could tell you that a rainbow is a mixture of moisture and dust particles reflecting the sun, and that would be true. But does that statement really capture the beauty and the power and the wonder and the magnificence of a rainbow? No, it doesn't. And so here's what I've concluded in, in this idea of trying to define or describe grace. I, I think any definition any description of God's grace has to include three words. The first word is love. God's grace is a product of God's love. The greatest, maybe the most beloved verse in the Bible, John 3.16 says, For God loved the world so much that he gave us his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. God's grace is a product of God's love. Listen to this a great statement from the Bible scholar Donald Barnhouse. He said, love that goes upward is called worship. 
Love that goes outward is called affection. Love that reaches down is called grace. And that's what God was doing when he sent his son, when he, when he sent grace into this world. He was reaching down into our messy, hopeless circumstances and, and touching and helping us. And he did it by giving us his grace. So any definition, any description of grace has to include the word love. Secondly, it has to include the word salvation. Because that's the ultimate blessing. That's the ultimate benefit of God's grace. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 5 says, It is only by God's grace that you have been saved. Now it's true that grace impacts our lives in other ways besides salvation. And we'll see some of that as we go along in this series. But by far, the biggest, most important gift of God's grace is salvation. If you miss that, you've really missed the most important part. Well, the third word that I think must be included in any definition of grace is the word free. Listen to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. Paul says, God saved you by His grace when you believed, and you can't take credit for this. It is a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done, so none of us can boast about it. Salvation is not a reward. It is not God paying us back for being good little boys and girls. It is a gift. And we'll be talking more about this as we go along. So for now, I just want you to understand that any talk about God's grace, uh, we must remember we're talking about uh, His love. We must remember we're talking about the key to our salvation. And we must remember that this is something that is offered to us for free. Now, if you can wrap your head around those three basic truths, then um, you've got a good foundation and you're ready now to start studying and thinking seriously about grace. This morning I want to kick off this series by talking about two lies that Satan will try to get you to believe about grace. Now Satan knows grace is God's most important gift to us. He knows it is the key to our salvation. He knows it is where we get our hope. And so it stands to reason that he would try to twist the truth, pervert the truth a little bit, maybe muddy the waters so that we won't fully understand or appreciate grace. And he does this with two specific lies. These are the biggest lies you will ever hear about grace, especially as it relates to our salvation. So let's talk about them. Here's the first one. There's more you have to do. Now, I just got through reading Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, which says that we are saved by grace. Now, Satan doesn't deny that we are saved by grace, that, that grace is involved in our salvation. He just wants us to believe that there are some additional requirements we must keep to, in addition to grace. And, and these requirements that Satan puts in our minds and makes us believe we have to keep They change from generation to generation. For example, in the New Testament, circumcision was uh, the big thing. It was a holdover from the Old Testament law. 
And it was the thing that a lot of people believed you had to do. It was a, a requirement you had to keep if you wanted to be saved. Now, the Jewish leaders would say something like this. Oh, grace is a wonderful thing. We thank God for his grace, but you still have to be circumcised. Don't think you're going to heaven if you're not circumcised. Oh, we love God's grace, but you still have to be circumcised. And that's why the Apostle Paul wrote these words in Galatians 5. He said, Christ has truly set us free. Now make sure you stay free and don't get tied up again in slavery to the law. Listen, I, Paul, tell you this. If you are counting on circumcision to make you right with God, then Christ will be of no benefit to you. I'll say it again. If you're trying to find favor with God by being circumcised, you must obey every regulation of the whole law of Moses. For if you're trying to make yourselves right with God by keeping the law, you have been cut off from Christ. You have fallen away from God's grace. That's pretty clear. Paul says, if you add the requirement of circumcision to grace, you actually disconnect yourself from Christ. That's really interesting. I mean, think about that. The thing people were doing to try to make their salvation more secure was actually having the opposite effect. It was negating their salvation. That was 2,000 years ago. We don't insist that people be circumcised. Circumcision isn't even talked about in a religious sense anymore. Um, but we have our own requirements that we like to add to grace. We have our own litmus test. And they change, as I said, from generation to generation. For example, when I was a young preacher, just starting out back in the early to middle 1970s, uh, there were a couple of requirements that, that people insisted on. If you wanted to think of yourself as a real Christian, if you're my age or older and you were in church back in those days, I'm sure you heard about these things. Uh, for example, in the middle 1970s, people would say, oh, grace, oh, grace, it's a wonderful thing. Oh, thank you, God, for your grace. Um, but you better use the King James Version of the Bible. And you better not work on Sunday if you want to be a real Christian. Now, that might sound silly to you in this day and age, because as I said, they change from generation to generation. The requirements change. But back in the middle 1970s, People were hung up on these two issues. I'll never forget, this was 40 years ago this happened. I was leading a Bible study in the church where I was pastoring. I was, oh, I was 25, 26 years old. And I'm sitting around this table with about 10, 15 people, and we're studying the Sabbath. And we're talking about, you know, honoring God on the Lord's Day and, and uh, getting rest and all this kind of thing. And, and one guy was so adamant about it. He slammed his fist on the table and said, I just don't see how you can call yourself a Christian if you work on Sunday. There are six other days of the week to work. Sunday is the Lord's day. I don't know how you can call yourself a Christian if you work on Sunday. 
See, that was his circumcision. Yeah, yeah, there's grace, but you can't work on Sunday. And then the newer versions of the Bible started coming along. And oh boy, maybe you remember this. Those newer versions of the Bible started coming along. People said, if you want to be a real Christian, you better use the King James Version. And you know, you still see a little of this now. Um, up on 1792, there's a little church up there, sits back off the road. And I don't know if it's still there, but in recent years, they had a sign in the front lawn of their church. And it said right there in clear black letters, we use the King James Version of the Bible. And let me tell you how I always interpreted that sign. I always interpreted that sign to mean we're real Christians. Because we use the real Bible. And so you see how it happens. We get these ideas in our head that grace isn't enough. You still have to meet certain litmus tests. Now you're wondering, do we have things like that today? Oh yeah. You want to know what the big litmus test is today in our culture? Not necessarily in this church, but in our culture. You know what the big litmus test is? This is how you determine if somebody's a real Christian. Their passion for social justice. If you're a real Christian, you'll be out there fighting for social justice. You'll be out there helping the homeless and the poor and the abused. And you'll be shoulder deep in the fight against sex trafficking. And you'll be volunteering in jails and prisons. And if you dare to believe that we should enforce our border laws and send these poor people home who are here uh, illegally, well then, you must not be a Christian because Jesus wouldn't think that way. You see how it works? In every generation, there is an issue or two or three that people hold up and they say, yes, grace is fine, but you have to do this too. Or you're not a real Christian. Let me give you three reasons why this lie is so awful. Number one, it creates confusion. Because even people who agree that there's more you need to do in order to be saved, they can't agree on what that is. And so one person has his list of extra requirements, and another person has his list of extra requirements, and you're sitting there wondering which list is right. Because they're not the same list. It's confusing. Number two, this lie is terrible because it creates fear. Instead of just being able to enjoy the gift of grace, you're constantly worrying about missing some requirement. What if there's something you're doing you're not supposed to be doing? Or what if there's something you're not doing that you are supposed to be doing? I have people come into my office who, are, who need to talk. I mean, for 45 years, people have come in. I'd say half of all those people, all through the years, half of them have been there because they're worried about their salvation. Something is bothering them about their relationship with God and their salvation. And so many times they think, well, there's something I'm not doing. We are saved by grace. 
not by doing. Then the third reason why this lie is so terrible is because it creates a false sense of security. You come up with your list of additional requirements. You got your little list. Yeah, there's grace, but here's the other things you have to do. And boy, you pay attention to that list, and you work on that list, and you keep all the tenants on that list, and you're doing great, and you think, boy, I know I'm saved, because I got grace and I got the list. But the problem is, it's a false sense of security. Because Romans 3.20 says, no one can ever be made right with God by doing what the law commands. Nobody can ever be right by God, with God by keeping a list of requirements. Remember Paul said to the Galatians, when you do that, it negates your salvation. It cuts you off from Christ. So this lie, that there's more you have to do in addition to accepting God's grace, is bad news from top to bottom. And that's why Paul wrote to the Galatians in, in chapter 1 and verse 8, and he says, anybody who distorts this truth about grace and tries to give you more requirements and more things you have to do, he says, let that person be cursed. Do you think God takes this seriously? Let any person who distorts the truth about God's grace be cursed. Well, that's the first lie that Satan promotes about grace, that there's more you have to do. Here's the second lie. There's nothing you have to do. And yes, this is kind of the flip side of, of the first lie. The first lie says grace is not enough. There's more you have to do. The second lie says grace is all you need. There's nothing you have to do. When I was a kid, my grandmother lived one block from a movie theater. And when my brother and I would go stay with her for a day or two on the weekends, we would kind of get bored. And it wasn't much to do at her house. And so she would give us some money and let us walk up to the end of the block and we would go to like a Saturday afternoon or a Sunday afternoon movie. And um, I would tell you that she gave me two quarters, 50 cents, and my brother. 50 cents to go to the movies, which tells you how old I am. And you might think, wow, she was a terrible grandmother just letting kids go to the movies indiscriminately. But it was the middle 1960s, and movies were a lot different then than they are now. But I remember going up there to those movies, and I always loved it when there was a new James Bond movie. And we're talking about Sean Connery as James Bond. And those were great movies. And, and do you remember... Uh, do you remember what the designation 007 stood for? You know, it was always James Bond 007. Well, seven was his agent number. He was agent number seven in Her Majesty's Secret Service. And the double O indicated that he had a license to kill. In other words, when he was out doing his secret agent thing, 
he never had to worry about getting in trouble for taking a life. If, if in the line of duty, he had to kill somebody, it was okay. He didn't have to worry about being prosecuted. He was above the law. Friends, that's exactly how Christians who believe this second lie act. They act like God's grace is their license to do anything they want or to not do anything they don't want to do. And so if you see some questionable, questionable behavior in a, another Christian's life, maybe a brother and sister in Christ, you see them doing something, you think, wow, that's not good. And you walk up to them and, and you mention that and you say, hey, I, I've, I've noticed this and I'm not sure a Christian should be doing that. The person who believes this lie would look at you and say, you know what, I live under grace. You know, I don't live my life by rules and regulations and, and I know I'm a sinner, but, but God's grace covers me. I don't have to worry about stuff like that. Years ago, a woman came to me and told me that her husband was developing a drinking problem. And she said that uh, she had tried to talk to him and it didn't go well. And she said, I think he's tuned me out. Would you try to talk to him for me? And I did not want to. Uh, I was probably in my middle 20s at the time. Uh, this man was 40, 50 years old. Uh, I did not want to approach him on that, but I felt like I needed to. And so I did. And I'll never forget what he said. He pointed his finger at me and said, Mark, you're just like my wife. He said, you try to box me in with all your little rules and regulations. And he said, you forget the thing that you preach to us. And that is that we're not bound by rules and regulations. We're not saved by keeping rules and regulations. We're saved by grace. He said, I know I'm not perfect, but I know God's grace covers my sin. I don't remember what I said to him. As I said, I was very young at the time, so I'm sure what I said to him wasn't the best thing I could have said. But I'm a lot older now, and a little bit wiser, maybe. And I know what I would say today. I would say, when you're saved by grace, that doesn't mean you have no master. It means you have a new master. Paul said it this way. Since God's grace has set us free from the law, does that mean we can go on sinning? Of course not. Don't you realize that you become a slave of whatever you choose to obey? You can be a slave to sin, which leads to death, or you can choose to obey God, which leads to righteous living. Thank God, once you were slaves of sin... But now you wholeheartedly obey this teaching we have given you. Now you're free from your slavery to sin, and you have become slaves to righteous living. Let me see if I can illustrate that for you. Think back to when you were a teenager, the first time your dad gave you the keys to the car and let you go out by yourself. Basically, he was setting you free from his oversight. He was giving you grace. And always before, he had been sitting right in the seat next to you, watching your every move, making sure you obeyed all the, the rules of the road. And boy, you concentrated, didn't you? 
when he was sitting beside you and you were driving, you worked so hard to do everything just right, but now you're on your own. No dad sitting in the seat next to you. So I wonder, how did you drive? Did you floor it? And drive 100 miles an hour and, and, and call your friends and meet them out at the edge of town and drag race? I know some of you, and I think a few probably did do that in this room. But most of you didn't. Most of you were really, really careful. I'm guessing that as you drove, you heard your father's voice in your head telling you to be careful. I'm guessing you obeyed the rules of the road to a T, not because your father was sitting there making you do it, but because you wanted to, uh, to do it. You appreciated the fact that your father had set you free, that he had given you this grace, this freedom, and you wanted, above all, you wanted to return the car to him with no dents or scratches. Friends, that's what living in the grace of God looks like. It's not a crazy, reckless life with no rules. It's a respectful, obedient life that is a demonstration of your gratitude to the one who set you free. So let's review these two big lies about grace. Number one, there's more you have to do. Grace is a wonderful thing. Oh, thank you, Jesus, for your grace. But there's still a few things you need to take care of. That's a lie. The second lie is there's nothing you have to do. Grace gives you a, a license just to go out and do whatever you want. Don't worry, God's grace will cover it. As I think about these two lies, I'm reminded of a quote that is attributed to Martin Luther. He said, Satan doesn't care which side of the horse you fall off of, just so you fall off. He doesn't care which of these lies you fall into and believe, just so you believe one of them. The first one will have you worrying yourself to death, working your fingers to the bone just to try to make sure you're saved. The second one will have you living a wild and crazy life, indulging in whatever Temptation strikes your fancy. He's okay with both of them. Friends, the truth is halfway in the middle, halfway in between those two extremes. The truth is that grace alone saves you. And then it compels you, because of your gratitude to the Lord, to live a life worthy. The Apostle Paul said it this way. Christ's love, you could put the word grace in there. Christ's grace compels us. Because we are convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised 